The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. We're in our third and final week focusing on the New Covenant in Jeremiah. If you will, open up your Bibles to Jeremiah 31, probably the most familiar passage in this book to Christians. We're going to walk through the New Covenant as displayed in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The New Covenant is what we are living in. This time period, since the coming of Christ, He inaugurated a new kind of relationship. It's called the New Covenant. That phrase, New Covenant, is only found in the Old Testament in one spot, the passage we're going to look at today. Now, it's called a number of other things, everlasting covenant, a covenant of peace, simply a covenant, um, the day in which the Spirit will fill all the saints, empowering them to obey, the day of the unified heart, but only one time is it called the new covenant, and yet that's the most popular term for it in the New Testament. We see Jesus on the night that he was betrayed... Paul uses that language in 1 Corinthians 11, I think, to talk about this is not how relationships are supposed to be. There was a betrayal on the night that he was inaugurating something special. Luke 22, verse 20, And likewise, this, the cup, after they had eaten, Jesus said, This is the cup that is poured out for you. That is, the cup of God's wrath that is being poured out on behalf of His people This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And if you've identified with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, you are part of this relationship. Remember, covenant is merely the the fancy word for relationship in the Bible. But it's not just a fancy word, it's a formal word. A formal relationship has been established. An elected relationship, not biological. You're not born into relationship with God into the new covenant. It's elected. He chooses us and we choose Him. And there's obligations on both sides. A relationship of obligation. In the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, says Paul. Do it in remembrance of me, citing Jesus. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So as we're eating the elements, eating the bread, drinking the juice, we are declaring the wrath of God has been poured out on Him so that we can enjoy life. That's what we're testifying to and At Bethlehem, we do it once a month, testifying to new covenant grace, new covenant grace. We don't want to take it lightly. Paul himself was a minister of the new covenant. And as he took the gospel of Jesus Christ beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea and Samaria, as Paul took it to the ends of the earth, calling in the nations to Jesus, he was doing it as a new covenant Minister, God made us competent ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, 
for the letter kills. Remember those tablets of stone that were etched by the finger of God and yet never made it onto the human heart. Jeremiah 17.1 said, It was sin that was inscribed on the hearts of Judah, not the law. But now, now in Christ, through His Spirit, the new covenant enables a heart inscription. Or in Moses' words, a heart surgery, circumcision. Or in Ezekiel's terms, a heart transplant. He takes out the heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. And then in addition to that, he fills us up with his spirit. Jesus, the mediator of the new in contrast to the old. Here's the writer of Hebrews. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than that than uh, the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. So we have a new covenant, and it's contrasted with the old covenant. We want to try to figure out what that old covenant is, so that we can understand the nature of the contrast. But this we know, Jesus is a better mediator. The covenant is better since it's enacted on better promises, a whole bunch of better. For if... That first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been the occasion for a second. For he finds fault with with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's Jeremiah 31, quoted in Hebrews 9, Hebrews 8. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish Away, The New Covenant. That's where we're at today. So, again, I ask you, open up your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. I have an abridged version up on the screen, and we're going to walk through it point by point. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming. Already we've seen that phrase numerous times throughout this book, and we've walked through them. And when we've seen that, it's been a signal of some future work of grace. And here, all of a sudden, it clarifies for us that future eschatological, spirit-wrought work of grace is New Covenant days. New Covenant, the days are coming When? I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. New covenant. When's it going to happen? Well, according to Jeremiah, it's days are coming. So he's not in the New Covenant, he's anticipating it in the future, but there's one more signal. 
Look at verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So the new covenant is something that comes after, which suggests whatever comes before is temporary, short term. The new covenant is an after covenant. After what? The main idea for this passage is is right there in verse 31. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that they broke. So, he's going to unpack for us a contrast between the new and the old. So, our first question is, what is this old after which the new comes? And I want us to see right away that we're not talking about the special covenant relationship God established through Adam or through Noah. We're not talking about the special covenant relationship God made with Abraham. The new covenant doesn't contrast with those in this text. When we talk about the new covenant, it specifically stands in contrast to an old covenant that was made with, look at the verse, verse 32, made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. So what's the old covenant in this text? The Mosaic Covenant, exactly. So, we spent a lot of time there, three years in Deuteronomy, and walked through it two falls ago. The Old Covenant was established in the law. The Old Covenant is being enforced in the prophets. We saw the history of the covenant in Joshua through Kings, and now we're seeing it unpacked by the preachers themselves. We've seen Jeremiah indict his audience. You are sinning. We've seen him instruct his audience. You should be obeying. We've seen him declare curse on his audience. All of those, indictment, instruction, and curse, straight out of Moses' words in Deuteronomy. And then... Now we're seeing him declare blessing. A blessing that Moses himself anticipated in Deuteronomy 30 when he used the different language of heart circumcision. So God will, when all these things come upon you, both the blessing and the curse, once you've been in exile due to your sin, God's going to do a new work. He's going to restore you. And part of that restoration will include the transformation of the heart so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 7. And all the curses that are written in this book, I will in that new covenant day put on all my enemies. Deuteronomy 30, verse 8. And you will return to me. And you will heed unto my voice and keep all the commandments that I am commanding you Today, Deuteronomy 30 is anticipating the day of heart transformation, God-wrought heart transformation that will enable love. Whereas in the Old Covenant, Moses knew it, and Jeremiah knows it, love isn't happening. Obedience isn't happening. 
But after the days of the breaking covenant, there will be a new covenant. And the implication is that something about this new covenant is going to be different. They were a, God was their husband. Israel was his bride, and yet they were faithless. Now there's going to be a restored marriage, and yet with the same people, but with a different people. The same people because it's still the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So notice how it's worded. I'll make a new covenant with Israel and Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, even though I was a husband to them. There's this continuity. But then notice verse 33, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So in verse 31, they're called Israel and Judah, but in verse 33, they're called just Israel. What does that suggest to you? Pardon? They're back together. Not a divided kingdom anymore. One united people brought together this covenant. So the new covenant is something that takes place after the old covenant has come to an end. That is, the Mosaic covenant was temporary. Or as Paul says in Galatians 3, it was a guardian until the age of faith came. Jesus comes and all of a sudden the law is no longer the guardian. The babysitter is not needed anymore. The bridegroom has come. So we have the main idea, Yahweh is going to establish a new covenant and it's not going to be like the old covenant. And we're going to unpack this, the nature of the new now, and in the process it will help us understand the old a little bit better. So it's in verses 33 and 34 that the new covenant is really unpacked. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. So here we have same clay, but a new pot. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? So it's going to be a new pot. This time not shaped for ignoble purposes, but for noble purposes. From the same lump of clay, you can make different kinds of pots. And in the New Covenant, it's going to be a newly shaped pot for positive, God-honoring, displaying purposes. So here we go. The explanation. Indeed, this is the covenant that I will make with Israel after those days. First thing that we read, verse 33 an internalized law. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Now, if you remember Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart. Love God with your heart. Love Him with your being. Love Him with all your substance. And then he said this, These words that I command you today, these words that I command you, shall be on your heart. 
So there's words being commanded that Moses was saying, don't leave them on the outside, get them on the inside. May they change you. May they make you a different person. And yet, Deuteronomy 29.4 says, God hasn't given you a heart to understand or, or to know Him. He called for you to have the law in your heart, but He didn't enable what He called for. Not the case in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, what was once etched with sin will now be etched with the very law of God. And if, Jeremiah 17.1, if it's sin that's etched on the heart, that relates to behavior. Implication is, if you can get something new etched on your heart, namely the law, it's going to influence how you act. You won't be rebelling against God, hostile against God. Remember, the old covenant that they broke. That tells us the old covenant was filled with disobedient, hard-hearted people. And the new covenant is not supposed to be that way. When you're part of the new covenant, you have a new disposition. Not perfectly overnight, but you truly have a new direction and a new progression over a lifetime. When you fall, you fall toward the cross, not away from it. You have a new orientation, not hostile to God, When he's going that way, you're going the other way. No, you have the law written on your heart. You're bent toward honoring him, toward following him. That's what the new covenant is supposed to look like. Number two. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the ultimate relationship formula. It's not the praise of man that is your God. It's not the quest for success that is your God. It's not evil desire of the heart that is your master. No, Israel, I will be your God. And you won't be my enemy, you'll be my people. This relationship that was broken is going to work in the new covenant. And how much hope there is in such a reality for us who are in Christ. The very one who said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, looks at you and says the same thing. The only sins that we can conquer are sins that have already been pardoned because God is 100% for us already in Jesus. He is for us. We are with Him. He is our God. We are His people. There is hope in that. In the times of sorrow, there is hope in that because He is our God. In the time of frustration, when bitterness rises or fears rise, we cast our cares upon Him because He is our God. We are His children. we got to believe in that. Or, in this text, not His children, we're His bride. And He loves us. I fail in caring for my wife well. He never fails in caring for His bride well. 
He's making a declaration, a promise that you and I are supposed to bank on. If we are in Jesus who inaugurated the new covenant, we say, He is our God and it's not going to change. And I am his, part of His people. Number three, covenant knowledge. Now this, this is a little bit tricky. I look at it and I wonder what it means. Verse 34, No longer shall the members of the covenant teach his neighbor, shall, shall a member of the covenant teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. So in the Old Covenant, we have a covenant in which children are born and at eight days old, all males are circumcised. They receive the sign of the covenant. They have no faith in Jesus, no conscious understanding of their sin, and yet in the Old Covenant, they are part of that covenant by birth. They're born into it. And then their life will prove whether they will be understood as remnant or rebel. But within the one covenant, there is both remnant and rebel. Not so in the new covenant. According to this text, the new covenant... has only remnant. So you have people like Jeremiah who truly did honor God, but he was living in a sea of people who didn't want to listen to his sermons. A sea of people who he could characterize as a whole as having sin written on their hearts. Now Jesus comes and inaugurates a new covenant. Paul becomes one of its key preachers. And what we read is that everyone within the New Covenant, who's truly in the New Covenant, knows God. But it says you won't need to teach them know the Lord, because they'll all know the Lord. So the question is, what if, I mean, did I just lose a job? Do we really need Pastor Jason? Let's walk through and look. Let's, what I want us to do is consider what does it mean to know God and what is the basis for knowing God. So if I want to know what Jeremiah means by knowing God, what might I do? How might I figure it out? If you really wanted to know, and you didn't have my email, what would you do? Do a word search on the word no. Now, 
you can either get a really cool, fast computer program, or you can get one of those really big, fat books called a concordance. But the computer is really easy. You can just type in no and limit your search to the book of Jeremiah and see what you find. How about know the Lord? What do we find? Here's what we find. All members know God. So what does that mean, Jeremiah? What do you mean that there's not a a difference between remnant and rebel? Because I look at my church here, and isn't it true that we have people come in the doors that are not saved? What do you mean by this? Number one, according to Jeremiah, knowledge of God implies that everyone who's part of this covenant is going to reflect the character of God. Knowledge of God implies reflecting the character of God as one who loves others and works for justice without prejudice. Look at Jeremiah 9. It's up here. Boasting. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But if you're going to boast, I want you to boast in this. What does it say? That he understands and knows me. He knows me. And then it says that I am Yahweh, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. If you want to boast, boast in the fact that you know me. That I am a God who is all about loving others, who's all about working justice, who's all about right order in this universe where I'm on the top, righteousness. And that I delight in these things. What does that last phrase suggest when it says specifically, for in these things I delight? What does that tell us about knowing God? Knowing God, it's not enough to just understand that He is a God of steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. But knowing God is somehow related to recognizing that He delights in those. He's a happy God insofar when He sees them evident in in the lives of others. He delights in seeing justice at work in His world. He delights in seeing you and I engaging in steadfast love. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is not this what it means to know me? So what does it mean to know God? It means to engage in justice and righteousness. It means to work for the cause of the poor and the needy. That's how James defines pure religion. To care for the widow and the orphan in their distress. 
That's knowledge of God at work. I know Him. I know Him not just who He is. Satan knows God that way. But I know Him in a way that it's changing me. And everyone in the New Covenant is going to have that level of knowledge. Here's John's perspective. And I think John has Jeremiah on the brain, and we'll see that over and over again. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If you knew Him, you'd be a loving person. And again, it's not perfect, perfect overnight, but it is progressively over a lifetime. We're finding our hearts becoming more and more loving. Only in the last four years have I, has my family at a deeper level understood the knowledge of God. Through our adoptions, it's begun to happen more in our hearts. Adoption wasn't even on our radar. We had our three kids when we moved here eight years ago. And we thought all was well, and then God rocked our world. Knowledge of God does that. When you're truly part of the new covenant, you're going to begin to change, and it could look different in your life. It may be ministry at the Marie Sandvik Center, right downtown. It might be investing in a widow's children or a divorcee's children. It might be giving time at the prison. But knowledge of God means there's going to be a heart that is developing for the broken. May God do it in our hearts. May we not grow callous to need. Number two, knowledge of God results in keeping commandments and fleeing from sin. Here's two texts. For my people are foolish, they don't know me. What does he mean when he says they don't know me? Because everyone's going to know him in the new covenant. They will all know me. They don't know me in the old covenant. My people are foolish rather than wise. They're stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise, but only in doing evil. But how to do good, they do not know. So he's connecting specifically the lack of knowledge with the lack of obedience. And insofar as we are not obeying, not honoring God, not following, we have little knowledge of God. Because knowledge of God means that we're going to be awed by His bigness and recognize I can't live for myself. He's the King and I am not. He is desirable. A treasure found in a field. I'll sell it all in order to have that. Rather than go after cisterns that are cracked and broken that hold no living water. If I know Him, I'm going to be different. It's going, to, it's going to alter me and compel me in certain directions. 
Here's John. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly is the love of God perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way Jesus walked. May God help us. Knowledge of God requires teaching truth and promoting what is good. These are all areas that when he says, all will know me, I'm trying to understand, what do you mean by that? Here's Jeremiah. The priest did not say, where is Yahweh? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth is grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil. And then it says, and they don't know me. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me. So there's a deceptive heart, a lying heart, that is in contrast to proper knowledge. When your friends look at you, what are you teaching them about your life? Do they see someone who by your own demeanor is instructing them in a proper knowledge of God? Or do they see someone who is living deceitfully, hypocritically? When your children hear your instruction, what do they see? So, knowledge of God means reflecting God's character, obeying His commands, and promoting truth, promoting what is good. Now, why do people know God? And this, everybody knows God, everyone it says, in the New Covenant. And I'll just say this, This is one of the key texts that make me a Baptist and not a Presbyterian. Why would I say that? Because Presbyterians have a perspective of the New Covenant that it's it's set up in structure just like the Old. So they baptized their babies and made in the Covenant community as remnant and rebel. Not everyone in the New Covenant is saved according to Presbyterians. This text says differently. They will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, so that you will not have to teach those in the covenant, know the Lord. Now, how is that different from what I'm doing today? Let's look. One reason that all new covenant members know the Lord is because they are all effectually taught by God. Those are big words. But look it, God says, I will write the law on their hearts. Everyone in the covenant, God has taught the heart. Look at these two texts. Here's Isaiah 54, 13. In the new covenant day, all your children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Well, then Jesus in John chapter 6 picks this passage up. And he says, it's happening right now. Notice, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
and I will raise him up on the last day, as it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. So when you come to Jesus, that means you've been taught by him. And everyone who comes to Jesus is part of the new covenant. And therefore, everyone who comes to Jesus has been taught by God to know the Lord. Not perfectly, but truthfully. So then Jesus says, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Here's John in his epistle. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. All of you do. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, or I could say do not know the Lord, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is, not, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. You have no need for a teacher, so He decides to write them a book in order to give them guidance. He's not teaching them to know the Lord. As if he's calling them to conversion. Because they're all saved who are part of the new covenant. Everyone has an encounter with God and therefore, when the instruction comes, it's not at a base level. You need to become a remnant. You need to come to Jesus. No, it's keep coming to Jesus. Keep following Him. See it progressively working in your life. Why? Because you already know Him. Because the law is already within you. And this is the fruit that's supposed to flow from it. And that's different, apparently, than the Old Covenant. They had an encounter with God, but it was external. They didn't know Him. It's seen most clearly here. Why do all covenant members know Him? It it makes it explicit. Look at verse 34. Why do new covenant members know the Lord? They will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for, because. What does it say? Because what? I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. So let's work it out. Forgiveness. The gospel, good news, reconciliation, leads to a proper knowledge of God. A proper knowledge of God means that the law is written on your hearts, meaning that you will obey and not break the covenant. Which means that if the old covenant was broken, the people didn't know the Lord, which means they were never forgiven. Because everyone who's forgiven bears fruit. That's how the four works. For their sins I will remember no more. For I will forgive their iniquity. Because I forgive their iniquity, they all know me. So that means even though there was Leviticus, for the majority, there was always a remnant. Remember that. There's people like Jeremiah and David and Rahab, Ruth, 
They were part of the remnant, but Jeremiah has no problem characterizing the entire Old Covenant as an age of covenant-breaking. The entire Old Covenant as an age of death. Or in Paul's words in Galatians 3.12, the law is not of faith. But that doesn't mean he didn't call for it. It didn't mean he didn't say, love God with your heart. But God called, and he didn't enable in the old for the majority. But in the new... Everyone he calls, he enables. And that makes me a Baptist. My children, young children, are not part of the covenant yet. And therefore they don't partake of the Lord's Supper. And they haven't been baptized. In a week and a half, my 12-year-old will be baptized. Today, what was for us last night, because we went downtown, it was the last Lord's Supper she, Ruthie won't get to eat and drink. Because she's in the new covenant. She's had her sins forgiven. And this is so practical. When we find ourselves battling sin, the answer in this text When I'm not knowing God the way I should, the answer in this text is, go down one level. We all know Him because our sins are forgiven. So camp on the gospel for a while. You're struggling with haughtiness and pride. Camp on the gospel because it will level you. It won't put you up above anyone else. You have sin and you need a Redeemer. You're struggling with despondency. Camp in the gospel. Because God is for us. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him for us all, will with Him graciously give us all things. And all of a sudden you find your heart soaring and empowered to love. You're struggling with bitterness and anger toward a certain individual. Camp in the Gospel. Because you realize how much you've been given and all of a sudden it does something in your soul. It makes you a different kind of a person. It enables you to be the lover that you couldn't be without camping in the gospel. They will all know me because I will forgive their sins. Jesus is the propitiation of our sins. He bears the wrath for us. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. There's a connection there between the wrath-receiving work of Christ and our following Him rightly. In Leviticus it words it this way, Those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Among those who are near me, and if you go and read Leviticus chapter 10, being near God, is He says, this is why I gave you the sacrifices, so that you could be near me. So you bring your sacrifice to God in order that you can enjoy a relationship with Him. And those who've been brought near through the substitutionary atonement, putting your faith in the sacrifice, the wrath of God comes on that and it sparks blood-bought power in our soul. Those who are near me, among those who are near me, I will be shown holy. That's what it says. It's going to happen. Because they're all going to know me. Rapid-fire synthesis of New Covenant in Jeremiah. Number one, this is bringing all the texts that we've covered in the last three weeks together. And you can go back and track them 
It's on the back of your sheet, all these words. The new covenant will be between the Lord and a reunited Israel and will be sparked by a new exodus out of exile and slavery, climaxing in a return to the promised land, or Zion, the new Jerusalem. The salvation will be led by the new hoped-for King David, who will reign in wisdom, righteousness, and justice, and whose identity will be Yahweh is our righteousness. This restoration will be overseen by godly shepherds, who will feed God's people with knowledge and understanding and guard them from harm. This restoration will spark the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant promise of blessing to the nations as Gentiles with new hearts will embrace God's law, serve Yahweh their God and David their king, and be adopted into the one people of God, resulting in a new identity that distinguishes them from the nations. The restoration will also include a judgment on the wicked who will remain, who remain hostile to God and refuse to surrender to His word. And finally, every member of this transformed new covenant people, every one will enjoy a God-wrought, blood-bought reconciliation with the Lord that will result in knowing God, relating to God, and obeying God. Not perfectly overnight, but progressively over a lifetime. Not perfectly now, but truly Now, the work of God in our hearts. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. Every spiritual blessing now being enjoyed as we await the day of the new heavens and the new earth and the total culminating restoration, new covenant. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, for the hope that it gives, for the clarity that it brings. I pray you'd work in the lives of all of us. When we see a knowledge of you dimming, may we find our hearts bathing in the gospel and see the sins overcome and your likeness being displayed, your commandments being followed, your truth being taught. Thank you that you have taught us that we have come to Jesus, that we have heard His voice, and that we have followed. Hold us, keep us, and draw in those we love into this same covenant, beautiful covenant relationship. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.